What's up everybody, Steven here with Neural DSP, and today my guest on Inside the Machine is Jeff Dunn. Jeff works as a co-mixer and engineer alongside Drew Folk, also known as Wizardblood. You'll know his work from bands such as Emur, Ice Nine Kills, Wage War, Motionless in White, and Chelsea Grin. And now I give you my conversation with Jeff Dunn. Why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of background on how you got into the audio game? Totally. Um, it probably starts with the Seymour Duncan user group forum. Um, Seymour Duncan pickups is I think everyone it was like a lot of people's first introduction to aftermarket pickups. Um, at least for me, it, um, I remember finding out that Tom DeLong used a, a Duncan Invader. And of course, me being, I think it was 10, 11, 12 at the time, I was really young and I had like mowed lawns all summer to like also then borrow money from my parents to buy a Squire Affinity. And it was like a single humbucker thing. And I was like, it needs to be more like Tom DeLong, but I'm a 12 year old child. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, I figured out that he was using that pickup. And um, my dad had an old soldering iron that I had burnt my hand on pretty badly earlier in my childhood. And I was like, I know we can do this. We can solder it together so we can figure this out and uh, changed a pickup, but like needed to go on their forum to find wiring diagrams in the process. And from there, I was just like, wow, there's a lot of people who like, Seemed to know a lot about, at the time I thought knew a lot, but like seemed to know a lot about tone. Um, and that became kind of this lifelong pursuit of like, cool, let's get like things sounding really, really sick. And I remember being young and um, always playing with like the EQ on my Walkman or like um, definitely the Rio Diamond MP3 player was a like big thing to just EQ things. Be like, these records sound like shit. I'm going to think I know better than the producer and change them. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Some combination of like, a deep desire to tinker with things and um, a pursuit of like sonic excellence, I guess, like trying to make things sound really good. So uh, changed pickups, hung out on that forum for a while. And at some point in time, got around to recording stuff. So um, my older brother makes rap beats for syndication. So shows like um, Keeping Up With The Kardashians and the various Real Housewives, they all need like really... Um, you know, transition music, that kind of stuff. So that's what he does. And he got into that through like beat making for his friends growing up. And was, he was always into hip hop. And I was always into started pop punk and then got into metal. And uh, I remember he had on our family computer, cool edit pro installed. And uh, I think precursor to Adobe audition or something like that. And really rudimentary uh, recording software, but you, just the, the fact that you could put something in and hear it back but then also alter it, layer on it, all that kind of stuff. I'd always been interested in like solo musicians um, like Andy McKee. And um, there's a sick bassist named Victor Wooden. And they always would play like cool loop pedal stuff. And that was I was thinking like, oh, OK, I get like layering sounds makes a totally different world um, of music. It, it becomes more open from that, from layering sounds. And uh, I started plugging my boss mt2 pedal straight into the green input on the back of my parents computer and uh of course that sounded terrible but it let me record a distorted guitar sound and i think the first thing i recorded was like a cover of pantera's drag the waters um and uh i was i was i, I was on to something early uh, i don't know what it was but yeah um i went from there and then i remember plugging like a casio keyboard in and like playing chordal sounds and it was all just using like my stock interface um and at some point in time um found a crack of cubase x 
SX2, I think it was. So yeah, I was definitely early on to that. Started with Cubase. I'm still on it. Have had detours in and around, but I'm still on it. Um, learned how to trigger battery samples to make drums, and it really went from there. Um, I think at some point in that journey, really around when I was looking for, hey, I need a better piece of recording software. I need better drums in particular, um, and figuring out the whole battery thing. This was pre-drum kit from hell, um, or right when they were sending out the things on CDs, um, the original kits. And uh, yeah, the Andy Sneap forum is really like, I found that. It's a fucking crazy resource. And I, it was just... Reading, I think, the back of uh, definitely reading the liner notes on a Kill Switch Engage record. Um, I'm definitely of the crowd where Alive or Just Breathing changed my life. Um, and that record sounded insane. So it's like, who did this thing? And you start seeing his name pop up in places and sign up on his forum and find out that there's like a whole crowd of people, including him, sharing information, um, which is like now, in hindsight, no surprise to anyone now, considering how many people out and about that I'm sure you've interviewed have like came from that forum too. Um, it's, it's a, it's a pretty long laundry, laundry list of, uh, people who came from this new forums. Yeah. Yeah. It was really finding that. And, um, and, uh, I don't think any other forum really for recording, like maybe gear sluts a little bit when I started getting a little bit more into like, um, the stuff that you would, a lot of the sneak forum was around program drums admittedly. And like what you could do with drum samples and stuff. And so gear sluts was always like where like the real engineers, like the old school engineers would hang out, kind of had that perception and um, definitely have like a lot of a lot of time spent reading through old threads on that, trying to figure out what people are doing and piecing it together. But yeah, those those resources really, really changed the game for it um, for me in particular. And I met the people who gave me like a launch pad for a career and like gave me my first paid jobs on those forums. And uh, yeah, still keep up with a lot of them. On a constant basis. So did you end up actually starting out mostly doing a lot of like remote work for all these people on the forums? Or did you actually get into the studio to work with them personally? It's I have a bunch of like branches that come off from the Steam forum that all end up leading to where I am now. But one of them was um, getting involved. First, uh, edited some drums for Ryan Harvey, which everyone will remember from Esprez 8. Ryan, um, that impulse. Uh <laughs> Um, Ryan, I think gave me my first like paid editing drum gig and it was, um, some hardcore band. There's something in the water or not water, whatever they have in Oklahoma, I guess the corn that like produced some really angry sounding kids in his time and, uh, started doing some edits for him. And then, uh, Dave Otero needed edits and, uh, Dave Otero popped out of the forum out of nowhere and was like, Hey, check out these Cephalic Carnage mixes. And I was like, duh, we have to respect you now. Um, and he had, I guess, I think through Ryan heard that I was doing edits, gave me a tryout on a record. And then I wound up doing this wild technical death metal record for him for like number two. And uh, after that, he used me for a couple other records. Um, one of the Cephalic ones, uh, an Elysian record. And um, from there led to, to working with Joey Sturgis. Um, I was his remote editor for drums for four or five years, starting in like 2007. Somewhere thereabouts. I think the first record I did was of Mice and Meds, The Flood. So around that timeline. Yeah. And um, I did that for a while. Did that through middle of college. And then you start to get like a new branch through the the Andy Sneap forum. Met uh, Andrew Glover from Winds of Plague. Uh, he played bass for them for a while. And um, 
he they were coming through tour through the town that I was um, through San Luis Obispo where I went to college and they played one of the venues there. I think Slow Brew got to talking to him and after a while ended up guitar teching for Winds of Plague uh, on a summer on a tour. And then we started uh, tried to start a studio in his house in uh, Rancho Cucamonga for a bit and then found that didn't really work out. Um, and then, uh, the last thread that I'm currently writing, um, great band called daylight dies from North Carolina. They're on candlelight or they were, I don't know if they're currently signed anymore. Um, I, that was like my first introduction to Jens Bagren's mixing. And, um, I just love the guitar tone they got on that record and their bass is posted on the Snape forum. So I just hit him up and was like, Hey, how did you get these tones? Um, and he responded and he had great detailed like pictures and, and stuff that he was sending back and forth. And we just started a friendship there that's lasted since. But, uh, um, Egan's, uh, their, their drummer, Jesse, he started a tech company that was like existed before, uh, like while I was still doing audio stuff, but I found in 2014, um, was kind of in a place in audio where I wasn't sure I wanted to do it for a full-time gig. There's a lot about like making, um, making a career out of something you love can sometimes taint aspects about being able to appreciate of it. And I was in a place where I was not able to make those two things work, um, at the time and kind of put it down and was, was, uh, moved back home, um, and was talking to Egan at one point and he mentioned, he's like, Hey, Jesse just started a software company. Like you have a, an interest in general political things. Um, you should apply there. And so I did, and I've been working there now for the last like five and a half years. Um, I talked to Jesse every day in meetings. Um, we haven't worked on music together in five years, six years, but, um, we do that constantly. And starting that job, moving to LA is what put me into a spot where, um, Another guy I met on the Andy Steam forum, Kyle O'Dell, introduced me to Drew Folk. Uh, Kyle had worked with Drew previously in North Carolina at Think Sound. And when Drew moved out, he posted, I think, on Secret Production Forum or something, was like, hey, I'm setting up traps in a new room in L.A. Like, does anyone want to come hang traps? And I was just like, yeah, like, where? I know, like, we have Kyle as a mutual friend. Um, seems cool. Where is your studio? It's like, it's uh, in East Hollywood. And at the time, I was living in Silver Lake. So it was literally a mile and a half down the, down, uh, down sunset from me. So, uh, that was a real easy thing to, to come over, hang out and really quickly started doing like night sessions and, uh, helping out with some like miscellaneous tracking work, printing stems at the end, like a lot of like, you know, intern type work. Um, and then over time started engineering stuff and now we're like effectively split mix partners where when a band comes in, um, He'll work with them on songwriting and getting the vocals down and perfect and track those. I'll track more or less all of the instruments. Um, if we do drums, we'll usually rent out a room, um, do real drums. That is, we always have drums on the record. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it works out really well. We like take turns doing automation until either one of us is blue in the face and, and that's, that's it. But yeah, so like to answer super long winded way to answer your question, like, it's led me to working with people remotely in person in context, totally outside of audio. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a, been like a, a real, I don't know, not backbone, but like, you know, a really uh, consistent thing to fall back on some lifelong friendships, like a real, um, feeling of camaraderie having come out of there. 
it was really interesting in like some of like the research leading up to the podcast where the names that you mentioned from the Sneep Forum, like like Joey Sturgis had a lot of really great things to say about you. And like the things that I read generally set you up as like this like jack of all trades, guy you can depend on. So how do you position yourself as that person? Is it just about the networking? Is it about, you know, who you know, going out to shows? Like what what do you what are your thoughts about like positioning yourself in that in that way. It's funny you mentioned networking and shows because I'm terrible and dislike both. Like I, I love shows, but my type of this is my show thing is I'll figure out. Cool. <laughs> Someone's playing Glasshouse. Glasshouse is the best venue in the fucking world. Everyone go play there. So um, shows happening at Glasshouse. I will peruse. I have found a way to search through hashtags and um, location tags to find a set list that someone will post inevitably for every single show to the set times. And then I'll figure out when the band I want to see is going on and I will show up 15 minutes before. I will watch their set. I will go to Homage Brewing next door, have a beer, and then go home and go to bed by 9.30 usually. Um, I'm kind of an old man in that regard. But... um, no, um, being in LA is really great for that kind of thing. There are like always bands coming through. A lot of the friends I have, like I mentioned, are not local. They're like in touring bands or they're like um, other producers. So it's great to have that come through, see them that way. Um, I don't know that I do any kind of real networking other than word of mouth, though. It's like a lot of the time um, early. It was a bigger deal early on to be in there in the room because like a lot of the connections I have now are like friends of the bands that we're tracking with us um, that like happened to stop by or, um, you know, had just been like in the room or something and we meet later. Or they want to they have a band of their own, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of it's been. um putting myself in a place where I can kind of pick and choose what I actually want to work on and make sure that the records I'm working on are going to like help out. Like, would I be stoked to share this on social media or is this like a check out this week band move that said yes to my fuck off rate? Um, yeah, like that's, I never want to do that kind of thing. Um, so I have definitely relied on the fact that, you know, I had a full-time job for the, I still have like a, a separate thing that I keep up, but like having that really let me build up the, the consistent client base needed to, um, so that I can stay on the word of mouth stuff that I don't have to do a ton of like, I don't message bands on Facebook. I think I have like one note on my Instagram profile. Um, yeah, I could be better at that. Maybe I'll need to get better at that at some point, but, um, yeah, a lot of it's just like if you do really good work and you're not super precious about it, um, I've always said that like I'm not super precious about having my names on records. There's a ton of uh, there's records on my wall that my name is not on. And I'm fine with that because at the end of the day, like, I mean, if I'm pretty good with SEO. So if you Google it, you'll still see my name attached to it. But like um, I know that the consistency across the board will still connect back and that it's kind of a, at this point, I think I have kind of a, a signature sound or at least the, the like energy I'm going for with something kind of big and bright and describing it in words makes it sound like everyone else's mixes these days. But you know, there's something there I think that people latch onto and it's been cool. Yeah. The, like the thing I've been trying to do for a long time gets really sick tones. It's now like reading that in comments on stuff is really cool to see. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you mentioned that you have a, you actually have a job outside of audio, which is, which is fascinating because I know so many people who would just be like, I could do audio full time and then just immediately jump into it. So why, why the other job? And then how do you balance those two together? 
um, the other job is like, there's a certain aspect of it of like, I'm in my late twenties. I am at in some degree, like the earning potential peak of my life as far as that. And, um, I lucked into for better or for worse, a position that was like in a good field as far as, um, job prospects, job security, um, and is in a place that I really like is mentally stimulating. We work in the political sphere, software for political campaigns, nonprofits, advocacy groups. I got a degree in political science. I am super interested in the goings on of the world. I'm a political junkie. I play like fantasy Congress instead of fantasy football. Um, but a lot of it is just keeping multiple parts of my brain stimulated is that, um, that's awesome to have, but I can't only do that. I tried to only do that and I went fucking crazy. Um, I had to figure out a way to like keep music up and I'm not the type who ever likes to be in a band because I like to think that I have a little bit of like musical ADD in the sense that I can't, I can't do one genre or like one sound super consistently enough that like you would need to, to, to be in a band. And so if I can be a fifth Beatle for a ton of other bands or like even just from afar, polish up your tracks, make it sound the best it can sometimes better than you thought it could. Like that's awesome. I'm super happy to do that. And that lets me kind of scratch two types of different itches that don't really, there's some overlap. There's a lot of project management aspect. There's a lot of like handling client skills that have helped me in, um, that I've learned in, um, in product management that has helped me in the audio side. Likewise, the audio side, um, the whole notion of, uh, working with a producer label bands to facilitate a tight professional product on a deadline, that's no different from a lot of other types of gigs as far as the the actual processes behind it and the things that um, you kind of learn to move those along. And you're at the end of the day, you're working with other people and human communication is the hardest part of anything that we're ever going to do. So um, it's good to, to keep those going in multiple places. Um, I really, really luck out that I have a very, very understanding uh, fiance who is just the fucking best in that regard. Um, I try to carve out as much time as I can in the evenings, but there's definitely like I wake up a little bit before her and it will work um, in the morning on audio, put it down at some point, um, do the software gig. And then when that's done and um, sometimes after she's gone to bed, um, do a little bit more audio. The weekends are always audio. Um, when I'm going to Drew's, I'm doing night sessions, doing weekends. Um, keep pretty busy. Right. Because you actually you you live outside of LA, but you drive, you come into LA to work with Drew. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's been a, a more recent change where, um, uh, it was, um, for my fiance, she got a sick job out here a while back. And, um, I live in Redlands. It's like an hour outside of LA. So it's not too bad to get in. And, um, the company I still work for is headquartered in LA. So it's easy to go in and get excuses to go in all, uh, to LA a lot. But, um, uh, the long distance thing just sucked. Um, it got to a point where I'm getting a lot of like external mixing stuff. So the, the balance of work with Drew and external stuff is starting to be a little bit more heavy on external stuff. Um, the stuff we're doing with Drew is like, I'm useful for maybe like two weeks out of the six that a band is there. And then like a lot of the work I don't even have to be there for, for instance. So we just finished um, in July um, record would make them suffer. And I was in for, I tracked all the guitars and all the bass and I programmed drums with, uh, their drummer, their drummer remotely a little bit back and forth, but their guitarist too had a lot of this stuff written and like even me doing all the instruments and now mixing it. Um, 
I was in for maybe like six, seven days total of the entire recording process. They were there for four, maybe five weeks. Um, and then the mixing stuff afterwards, I've got a more or less mirrored setup to Drew. We use the same monitors. We've got the same DAW. We work out of a shared Dropbox folder. So all after tracking the session over there, just sit here, open it up, same folder, same everything. I've got all the tones or all the sounds in. I reamp it if I need to, if um, we weren't feeling the tracking tone uh, or if I'm just feeling like using one of these sick amps. Um, and then... Yeah, it's it's like a process where so much of the work doesn't need to be done in person that I was able to split myself off from from living in L.A. And I love living in L.A. It was great, but it um, I don't know. It's a city that wears you down a little bit. I think all cities wear people down a bit. And I'm uh, a little bit more of a, of a slow paced curmudgeon. So it was nice to get out to like a suburby style of life. Right. No, you mentioned going to bed at 930. I'm on that same kind of kind of boat. I go to 930 bedtime and like 430 uh, 4.30 wake up time. It's pretty. And it's not even like a choice. The wake up time I'm finding as I get older, like I just can't get keep my body in bed past like seven. Just sitting there catatonic, <laughs> like go to fucking sleep. Can't. Yeah. 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 No, I, I yeah, I do. I do the same thing. I don't. Uh, I also feel like I'm generally wasting the day if I don't get up and just do something. I kind of oh, have totally. that like itch to be moving, like to be in the studio, to actually be doing, working on things. Um, yeah, it's it's oh, like totally. a seven day a week thing for me. Like I'm in the studio all the time, just working on whatever. I had to move it home for that reason. Like that was one of the things was like sharing a space with Drew was great because we had everything there and it was all the same. But once I got to a point where I could afford to match a lot of the equipment and like just make it like um, super comfortable to work in, it's uh, I can't tell you how nice it is to be able to like put down one thing and move to another that's just not even feet away. Sometimes just shifting like which computer I'm using um, and being able to not have a commute is the best thing in the world. My four mile commute in LA took me 35 <laughs> minutes each way. And I just don't ever want to do yeah, that again. No, the, the traffic here is pretty ridiculous. Like I feel pretty, I feel pretty lucky that my commute's maybe about 20 minutes tops, right? Like I, I, it's, it's pretty good for the, for, for where I'm at, you know? Um, but do you feel like that might like, cause I've heard a lot that you never want to be living in the place where you're working, vice versa. You don't want to be working in the same place that you're living. So how do you separate those two things? I don't track bands. <laughs> that's honest to God. If I had to have bands here all the time, I would not want to live here. And um, that's a, a big part of it. So I, I like having a lot of remote mixing work. Um, I don't know that suits my personality. It suits my pace of works. I'm definitely the creative type where like my, my, uh, my productivity comes in spits and furts and spits and furts, spits and <laughs> fuck fits and spurts. Uh, and, um, and as a result, like, I don't know necessarily when I'm going to be feeling super productive on the thing. And I can, it's super nice to be able to like, I'm not feeling like my, I'm not going to judge this sound wise today. I'll go through and put markers on everything or do cleanup work or do some editing and then come back to like the actual mix work another time. Uh, maybe even just later that night, um, that kind of thing, go out for dinner, go grab a drink, come back to it with different state of mind. Um, but it's definitely a thing that I've got in mind where I'm like, we're starting to look into buying a house in the next year or two. Um, and that's definitely like 
There's a lot of places out here that have in-law houses. So having a separated thing at minimum or looking into getting a dedicated space that's external is definitely like on my list of things to do as I guess as and or if I start expanding into tracking bands. It's something I always like you miss it for a little, but then you track your first band in a while and you're just thinking like, I just wish I could jump out a fucking window right now. This is terrible. This is just as bad as I always remembered it and somehow convince myself to forget. It's, yeah. it's, I love you bands. Sorry. Nah, it, it, it happens, you know, like it's, it's, it's a grueling process, like recording bands and having, you know, musicians in the studio tracking everything is, it's, it's a very grueling process. Like I was thinking about that the other day, like I have my systems down now working with neural DSP and I'm making YouTube content. I'm doing all this stuff. And I thought about it, like, do I really want to go back? I don't know if I do. Like I could do, I could do mixing work, but like, I don't know, I don't know if I could go back to doing the, 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 the grind with the, the recording. If I had to, obviously, yes, but no, it's, if I had the choice. Yeah. It's a fucked up thing for me where it's almost like whatever is going to be, it's the most recent experience is what sticks in your head for sure. But there's like, it only takes one really, really bad band to like ruin that experience for you and make you to never want to do it again kind of thing. And it really only does take one other really great band to make you remember it. It's just, they tend to like somehow follow each other. So you're always on this seesaw of like good, bad, good, bad, or like you get three good, but you know, if there's one that's bad enough, it'll still make it horrible. Um, so like make them suffer, for instance, amazing to work with. We're like, had a bunch of stuff prepped, came in super prepared. We're really open to suggestions. Uh, Nick was super down to use my Evertune guitars, which always makes life easy. Um, and that was a like a dream process type scenario, but they're not always like that. So, right. Yeah. Which actually, so we, we were chatting a little bit before the podcast. That makes me think, uh, what, I want to ask what your studio pet peeves are. Oh, um, Extra people in general, I mean, this is super common for engineers, but just when like people who don't need to be there show up, like here's my friend, he's going to take pictures like, I don't know, at some level that's okay because like they got to have their studio guy, but sometimes it's just like them bringing friends and that's always weird. Um, I have pet peeves around parking. People are just inconsiderate parkers. So like, I don't know, fans screw that up sometimes too. Uh, maybe they're not used to driving their small cars. They're used to hauling vans and they didn't remember how to park and give space the right way. Um, no, but really annoying stuff I would say is like that dude who's noodling the whole time when his input track is armed and you're like trying to judge a take and you're clearly like listening again and you don't want to tell him to shut the fuck up, but you have to at some point. So I need to listen to this as if that wasn't the whole reason we're all here. Yeah, that that one sucks a lot. Um, there are ways around it, like making sure that your tuner mutes it. Just be like, tune, shut up, tune. And if you've got an ever tune, you don't get that excuse. So I run into that a lot. Um, trying to think. There's a lot of stuff that like you run into consistently with bands where they don't bring stuff in certain ways or like they haven't agreed on parts. And so. Um, when I find myself being more like band therapist or like having to like settle drama between things because people weren't communicating beforehand, that sucks. That's also one of the reasons I love working with Drew is that I don't have to worry about that too much. Um, yeah. Yeah, just people making extra noise when they don't need to. 
Like we're here to make sounds in this context. Otherwise, be mindful of yourself. Don't bring extra things. Turn your phone off mute. Don't noodle. I don't know. If you're going to be in the room, be engaged. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so bands that are listening to this podcast, take this as sage advice. I mean, don't be an asshole. Just like, it's, it's so hard to not just boil it down to something like that, but just like, Hey, you, this is a classroom. Basically there's other people here to do a thing. Uh, classroom is the wrong metaphor. It puts me as a teacher. That's not like a thing. Um, you know, we're all here for the same thing. You can't be like behaving in a way that's going to detract for it for others. Ultimately, you're just wasting your own money. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so we've kind of covered the musician side. So I know that there's a component of the audience that are looking to be producers, engineers, mixing and uh, mixing engineers, that sort of stuff. Oh, you know who's worse than bands to work with? Oh. Other engineers sometimes. <laughs> Is that where you're going? Give it to me. Come on, I want to hear it. Um, there's a I've you know I've just received a lot of bad tracks before. Um, sorry, Logic fans, but anytime I see BIP at the end of a file, my butthole puckers because I'm like, <laughs> this is gonna be poorly edited and it's gonna have clicks and pops between all of it. Um, it's, they've gotten better on that to some degree, but um, uh, I have personal pet peeves. Like I hate receiving um. Unless it's like overhead left and right where they're going to be slightly different sources. I loathe uninterleaved files. Like if you've got a synth track, send it to me as a stereo file. I don't want to piece it together after the fact. Um, I know a lot of Pro Tools dudes love that. But like I'm going to check your inner. If you send me a Pro Tools session, first thing I'm doing is checking interleaved and then re- Command shift three or whatever that yep. thing. that I know like three commands in Pro Tools and one of them is to get the fuck out of it. Um yeah, uh, that's a pet peeve. Um, there's this thing that happens where I think people don't realize the alphabetical sorting or they're not thinking about it, where if you do guitar DI 1L, guitar DI 2L, guitar, etc., all of your guitar DI tracks are grouped and then all of your amp tracks are grouped, but none of the like performances are grouped. So what you should do instead is like name it something that's unique up until the point it needs to separate. So like guitar one L D I guitar one R D I. And then it'll show up as guitar one L guitar one R guitar one L D I guitar one R D I. And then it's slightly, it's grouped. It's nice. Um, stuff like that. Um, this makes me sound crazy. I'm just like getting mad about file names. No, 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 no. So, so I, I think a lot of people don't understand that these are aspects like detail work that make your life easier so that way you don't have to think about it in the process. Like, like if you have like somebody who's assisting you, having the names correct on your, your tracks, having all of them in an order that makes sense, like it, it makes your life easier because then you can just focus on the things that are actually important to you. Exactly. If I have to go searching for which of these vocal tracks labeled dupe one, dupe two, dupe three is like the actual top line of the song. I had that happen recently with a project where the great band from Australia um, and they often mix like screaming pitched yells and growls and then sometimes actual clean singing. And it it's really tough sometimes with the tracks as presented without listening to a reference mix, which like solves everything. But there could have been some naming on the the vocal tracks to more clearly denote like. Even though we're layering 
um, a pitched scream and a growl for this chorus. We want the pitched scream to be like the lead line for sure. And in some cases, like that's easy to tell. One's got a melody, one doesn't. It's probably the top line. But if like one is our aggro, like angry man yell and it's pitched, and then one is our actual clean singing that we want to use as like a, a layered thing, which one am I supposed to favor? Like it's kind of tough. Um, that can happen. And then there's always the problem of like, we're always recording tracks that have like, I call them a B versions or point one, point two versions, but of like vocal line one is going to have some syllables that overlap. So you need two lanes for your main recording line, but like name those in a way that the files are next to each other. Or it was like obvious that those two are linked. Um, yeah. Yeah. I find myself doing a lot of like file Tetris where I like, Oh, here's my actual scream main one, scream main 1.1, scream main two, scream main 2.1. And then all click and drag their regions into my, my essentially the template I've built for that so that I can like just think about the files being organized in the right way. Right. Right. So it sounds like you're doing all of your own like mix prep stuff. You don't have an assistant doing that for you yet. Nope. No, I, I, it's the situation where like, that's what I do for Drew and I don't trust anyone as much as me. So yeah, if, if there are dudes who are killer at Cubase, hit me up. I'm definitely looking for folks who can help set things up to some degree. Um, I have a couple like repeat processes that I do for almost every record as far as setting certain markers certain way and then using those to generate um, automation points. And it'd be cool to have some of that stuff done, but um, there's almost something Zen to me about like getting a, I do the, the album in a session move whenever I can. And so like getting a full session, getting the first song in populating where things should go and then dragging the others in and just like seeing it all line up. Um, it's nice. I don't know. There's something like a little bit Zen about that. It's probably not the most useful, like, um, work I could be doing for the amount of time it takes, but I don't know. It's not terrible. It's also pretty good quality control. You find out things that you wouldn't otherwise when you're in that deep. Um, on that same project, I found out like, hey, someone screwed up their like uh, beat detective settings when they merged the overheads here. And every time the snare is hit, it moves left and right in your overhead track. And it was like, I probably wouldn't have found that if someone else set up my mix unless they would find it. And that means I got to find someone I trust to find all those like small details, which is it's just been tough. Um, especially I guess like as much as I love Cubase, finding other people who work on it and like learned on it is starting to get not starting to get, I've been looking for a while, but like, um, you know, I feel like logic is, is, is coming up in popularity. Pro tools is still a standard as much as I hate that. Daw. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I, I know the feeling I actually started on a cracked version of Cubase five, uh, and then went to Cubase 9 and 9.5. Uh, but I got an opportunity to work with this, with a guy out of LA, another uh, URM Academy guy. And he's like, well, I work in Pro Tools. And I'm like, cool. I too now work in Pro Tools. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it's. Um... We get sent a lot of spec. I hate spec mixes, but we do some spec mixes. And um, a lot of times I'll get it in Pro Tools format. And I like, I just wish like OMF type exports were good enough to actually transfer between DAWs. They're not. Um, Usually it's, it's, it's good enough that I can pull it out and get it. But like recently we had one come in where it was like, oh, this Pro Tools session is really thoroughly mixed already. It's going to be really hard to migrate out of it. and it ended up being one we didn't get. So go figure. Yeah. Um, 
not that I like want to dedicate my life to doing spec mixes. So I'm not going to like instantly bone up on pro tools just to do killer spec mixes to get denied by someone in favor of the band's friend who was hidden in on it and, you know, got to do three extra revisions that you didn't spec mixes are bad. You shouldn't do them. So, so actually I, I was, I was going to start exploring that too, because, uh, that came up in conversation in the URM private producer club and among me and a couple I think of my Sam, friends. Sam Puro was talking about it recently. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he posted in that and like, it got kind of heated in the comment section because like, there's definitely, you know, there's, there's a lot of different angles and it depends on if it's a spec mix for like a competitive sort or whether you're just using it to land the client that's already kind of in your, in your pocket already. Like, so I'm, I'm curious what your general circumstances look like when you're doing a spec mix and why you just hate them so much. Uh, generally I find it's like an exercise in nepotism. Um, the ones we've been in, I've ne- I don't think we won a spec mix. There was one that we did win and, I got to be honest, you know why we probably won? Really good friends with the label head. Like, whether that, like, led to any appreciable difference in the mixes, I think we did have the best Sonic mix, but um, in that instance. But I don't, like, the fact that we got to hear other people's mixes is, like, tells you something's broken in the process. There's always someone in the thing that's closer to someone else who is friends with the manager of the band who is going to get the other people's things before they submit theirs and can judge how they submit theirs based off yours. And in some cases, give revisions. And even with all of that, they're not always going to pick the best mix if they know who did them because a big name is going to cloud up a lot. Um, or it's going to give you like feelings of nostalgia. We did a, a spec mix two months ago where the track came out. Um, someone else ended up mixing it, but the, like the guy, it was between us and another guy at the end. And that guy had done their previous, like earlier records. So like, there's a huge nostalgia thing attached for that. And the mix that they put out wasn't the one that we had heard. So like we all had been doing revisions in, in the time frame. Um, it's just, I, I never feel like, it's a it's a way to get a bunch of people to do free work, essentially. And I don't know. I would rather people make a. Find someone you like that you trust to do the thing, take a chance with them, make a piece of art. If it doesn't turn out, if that's the only record your band makes, well, sorry, that sucks. But like, go do another one. Go find a new band. Go make a new record. Like it doesn't have to be uh, an optimize everything all the time. Like, Oh, let's get 10 big mixers to do a thing and decide the best one. Like the best person is probably not always like is half the time. The best person for the job is the guy who's available to do it. And so like, I don't know. Yeah. Spec mixes are interesting. I think you, you get a lot of people defending them, especially if it's like, I they're avenues for big work. You hear about like Ken Andrews got a couple records. I think that Paramore record in particular was off a of spec mix and we've done cool mi- records. We've done at least two or three that like off spec mixes that have turned out cool. But my preferred way of working is always to have someone come to me and say like, Hey, I like what you do. I want to put like uh, some trust into your process and let's build a thing together and not like, Hey, let's window shop for like the best, you know, the best model based on our RFP, right? Which was right. The, the stems we sent. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a. I can see why people like them. I know why they exist. I don't think in a in an ideal world, or if people were really like honest with themselves, that they would be a thing they want to have around. But you know, you pick the battles you can. Right. 
Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so going back to producers, like I was, I was kind of wondering like, so what are some of the things like we went over in a pretty extensive list of like, do not do this, uh, thing for engineers and, and bands especially, but what are some things that you find have helped you out in your career? You know, the, the to do list. You try to be, have just open eyes as far as like, if you're in person, especially try to be hyper aware of what's happening to the point where like, you're the one catching the mistake in the like, Oh, that channel's not on or like that light's not the right way. Um, that guy looks uncomfortable. Like there's something not right about this part. Um, there's a careful balance between like speaking at a turn, especially in that scenario. There's a lot of like sit down, shut up vibes around interns, so to speak. But um, there's a certain aspect of like, if you can be a safety net, that's largely a lot of times like what you're there for. So um, being on the lookout for places where you can kind of plug holes, be helpful and not make a big deal out of it and just like make it a um, become invaluable through those little processes. Um it's definitely a part of it. Um, being open to learning new things or trying things in a different way. Like I know I came into a lot of the stuff working with Drew with particular notions of like how a mix should be set up. And I would like often open sessions after he had toyed with them and be like, what the fuck did he do to this kick? What is going on? And then I'm like, actually, it sounds awesome. I'm taking that trick from now on. Like that happens a lot. So just being open-minded with it um, and then knowing where like, Hey, actually, that's really bad practice because that's out of phase, for instance, you know, knowing where you can apply tasteful um, breaking of rules versus versus like doing the things by the book Um, and then being willing to like there's always a certain aspect of like um, being willing to do a little bit extra. Um, And I know I just rallied against working for free and the term of spec mixes, but like. Hey, sometimes you're going to have to like print extra stems or like, Hey, you're the guy they're going to hit up later for like when they need this instrumental thing or like, or even going beyond and trying to anticipate things that they may need or want in the future. Yeah. Like I now label all my sessions in a way from the get go that I can print stems without thinking about it. I didn't do that until I had to sit like after hours on a couple records, like, ugh. Rename it all inconsistent. These are capitals. Here's where the hyphen goes. Okay, now I'm ready to print them. Yeah, um, you kind of hone those in over time. And then like finding the way the other person likes to work and how they like to receive it and like just getting into their groove um, goes a long, long way um, to just like they're not trying to work around you or like have a new process because you're in the mix. They're trying to do their thing and have you enhance it. So Sometimes that means bringing new things to the table. A lot of time that means adapting something you've been doing to work with the flow they've got. They like to tune vocals a certain way. They like to use a certain like thing for their recording process. They're probably going to want to keep doing that. And they're bigger than you and are more successful than you. So you're going to have to do that a little bit. Um, Yeah. Being friendly, willing to take on stuff. Um, And then I think um, coming to terms with yourself that – everything will always need to happen on a more snap notice than you want it to. That's one thing that I've learned about this gig is, is that there's a lot of like, had someone hit me up yesterday. who was like, Hey, we need stems for this thing. And I luckily had already printed them and sent them to their label. So they could have gotten them there, but I was like, cool. I sent them over. And then today I saw them post a, a promo video using the piece of the stems that he needed. So it was like a lot of times people are doing things super last minute 
And it's not a thing that you can get mad about or get frustrated about or like even try to complain about because it's not going to stop. It's just but there's a certain aspect about band creative schedules that are going to shift either way by two, three weeks, be it early or late, mostly late. Um, same thing with budgets. They're going to be like usually lower than you want them to be and paid later than they should be. Um, but the work is going to need to be done like on time ahead of time, often yesterday and developing strategies to be able to meet those deadlines, I think is really important. Be it the way you work with, um, your gear or the way you have your computer set up or, um, you know, where you live, how close proximity I can get on things super quick. Cause it's like, it's in my house. There's a Dropbox server, just like holding all our shit and I can get to it if I need to. But if it, it used to be like I had to drive into, into Drew's. And so if I had to make time extra for that, that was more of a pain in the ass. Yeah. Cause that's that, another benefit of, of the yeah. remote thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's like two hour drive commitment right there just to go in well, and you, come out. And, even back when I was in Silver Lake, just like planning my life around like, Oh, I got to go in and print mixes for three hours. Like now I can do this and go like make dinner, watch TV, <laughs> like, do whatever, do laundry. I need to do laundry actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. The, the, the mindset is also a really, really big thing. Like you mentioned, being just okay that things are going to go wrong or th- people are going to need things last minute and getting upset by it or getting worried by it or, or anything like that. It's just going to be totally counterproductive. And also it's going to put you like people know, people can sense those sorts of things, right? Like, especially if you're in person and you get agitated because people are asking things of you, they know that you're getting agitated. And that now puts you in that position of being that guy that nobody likes to work with just because you got pissed or because people are asking things of you. I used to, I definitely have like, I have bad knee jerk reactions to things in general. So that's like definitely a thing I've had to work on. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a well, the deeper I get into this, the more I think I like need to actually research Buddhism or become a Buddhist. I know there's a principle around like everything around you is always crumbling. That is like the state of the world that everything is falling apart. And even your understanding of that thing is always in a constant state of falling apart. Um, to get mad about that is not useful or going to do anything good. Yeah. But that's not often like what feels good. Sometimes getting mad feels good in the moment. So I don't know. It's balancing those things. Yeah. It feels, it feels justified, right? You feel like, yeah, I got, because if you can get angry about it, you're sort of taking the power back because you're choosing how you want to react to this thing when it's really like counterproductive to the overall long-term benefit. Yeah. Or just like knowing that, like I got angry about this. That wasn't necessarily like, cool, that's a thing that happened. You can move on from there. Like, you can stay angry. That ends up being a conscious decision at some point. But yeah, like, right. I, that's, that's, I think the thing about my knee jerk stuff is that you have, I, it took me forever to realize, like, oh, I actually can't control the fact that I'm going to have some really negative reactions to things and that might happen. Um, what I can control is like how long and how visibly angry those things make me and like, what I do that might be irrevocable in that time. So like, cool, angry, got it. This fucking sucks. Want to jump out a window, let it wash over you return. Yes. Yes. Uh, that, that's, that's awesome. Um, so that makes me wonder, is there a 
favorite failure of yours that you've had in your career that maybe set you up for a future success or, you know, something? Yeah, I kind of touched on it in the like the intro, but um, trying to make a studio work with Andrew Glover um, and then that not working out. It's like I went into it pretty naively, I think, with a lot of expectations about like how consistent work might be and what that life in general looked like. Um, part of it was in a bad place of like I lived where I worked and I didn't have a ton of friends in the area. So when you don't, you know, when your commute is 10 steps, but you also don't leave like a 30 step radius other than to do things, that was not great. Um yeah, but putting that down, like putting audio down and like finding something else that I had to to like dedicate time to and work out as far as paying bills was a huge thing. Um, I don't know if it like it set me up in the timing wise, timing wise for like it, it put me in a position where I moved and that got me into a place where a bunch of other opportunities lined up. Um yeah, I don't know if there's like a, a particular moment in there that I'd flag, but that whole process of just like thinking it was going to work out, not making other plans, having that kind of crash and burn and like, oh, OK, I got to go back to the drawing board. Um, I like moved in with my sister at home. It was embarrassing. And like, yeah, um, but no, when I was like ready to come back, out, I was like when I um, when Drew moved out and we got back in touch, not back in touch, in touch. Um, it was kind of like, oh, I'm like hungry for this a little bit. And I now know how to like not get super bummed about it because I've already had it not work out once. So in that regard, that probably helped me mentally be more ready for it and like roll with the punches a little more. I also had a consistent job, which left the like pay aspect of it not be an issue. So, yeah, there's a it's a weird thing to have to like ride in balance but um i'm always super impressed by anyone who makes like a full-blown living in that in uh in one area have you always been like that motivated to make the audio stuff work like has that ever been like an issue as far as like getting in the way of your your work have you ever just felt like nah fuck it i'm just gonna go and just do the job thing oh like quitting audio again I haven't gotten yeah. there yet. No, I've gotten to a couple yeah. places with a job where I'm like, I just, I would rather work with bands than you people. Um, uh, <laughs> no, it's, I, it's, I've been able to like strike that balance there. I have, I have a had a habit of biting off more than I can chew a lot of times where like, I think it's freelancers dilemma where you don't necessarily know how consistent the work is going to be. So you take it as it comes. And sometimes because as I mentioned before, bands will be early or late with things. Sometimes, some will be late and others will be early and they'll all mash up on top of each other. Like September was a fucking nightmare uh, as far as the like amount of things that ended up being produced or like bounces that I made probably the most of my entire career, like as far as a continuous month. Um, and that has problems with like how much time you spend on it, how much time you get like outside of it for your own mental health, as far as recharging, how much time you end up spending with fr friends, family, loved ones, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's always a balance of that, but, um, I think if that were a little bit more evened out, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that last one. That's all good. That's all good. So what do you see as the future for your work in your studio? 
like I said um, a little bit earlier, kind of knowing that I'm going to be in Redlands for the next uh, few years, um, figuring out like what kind of slant as far as getting a dedicated space um, or continuing the home route. I really like working from home, so that's uh, a thing I want to pursue. Um, I am lucky enough to have a space where I have like dedicated amps and cabs uh, always mic'd up, and I am a total like horror in that regard. I love gear and I'm finally at a place where I like, I don't have to sell an amp to buy another one. So I've been doing a little bit of collecting. Um, I definitely have an eye towards doing that producer thing of selling Kemper profiles and impulses. So be on the lookout for that. Um, I don't know who I'm going to release it with or if I'll end up releasing it on my own, but like I spend most of my effort getting really sick tones and I have a really cool collection of amps and cabs at this point. So it feels almost criminal not to. Um, yeah, continuing to work really heavily with Drew. There's a couple of really cool repeat visitors who are coming back towards the end of the year. We just turned in this week, um, record with a mirror. That's a follow-up to the last one that I think folks will really like. Um, got a lot of use out of, uh, parallax on that one. So thank you. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping to increase the amount of like just remote mixing I'm doing. Um, not sure I really want to dive into tracking bands too much, but um, just keeping that balance going. Um, right, right. And do you feel the pressure to become far, like more active on like the YouTube, Facebook, Instagram kind of sphere with the social media? Because I feel like that's such a present thing now. Like everybody is vying for everybody else's attention. If you don't have something that grabs that attention, it's just going to go move on to the next person. Yeah, I definitely like I'm bad at content creation. Like I probably should be making videos of comparison things. And like I do a bunch of tests on my own. I do really thorough tests. Like every one of my cabinets has like a full shootout of the speakers in every position. Um, I've been spending the last couple months buying different speakers from different timelines of the boogie history and like comparing those um, different amp tubes, different drive pedals, like all that really like meticulously to the point where if I just like took a picture of an amp and then did a quick like AB on YouTube, it probably would do it. But like, and I know I could figure it out, but I'm not in that practice. And it's just like, eh, that sounds like a lot of work. I've got things to mix. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I want to be better at it. And I know that's probably how I could get companies to give me more free stuff. Cause I think that's how people do that is like, Hey, if you make cheap Chinese ripoffs of real British gear, Send me your stuff because I can put it on YouTube. <laughs> I can't do that. I don't know. I'm, I don't have the – I should get into that. Um, no, I, I do know that like um, I've got a record with uh, – going to be mixing a record with a good friend of mine. I'm not going to name drop it, but like he is really good at, at content um, creation and that kind of stuff. And I know we need to do some stuff for his, so I'm going to get a crash course in that a little bit. Um, and these are always fun. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll probably need to start leaning into that. I have an issue where like, I think two years ago I was like, Oh, I need to put together my Instagram top nine for the end of the year. And I was like, I didn't have nine posts this year. <laughs> so yeah. Oh yeah. No, that, so Dave Otero has been, is a good example of somebody. He's who's so really, good at it. He's so good. He's and he so used to good. do nothing. And now he just out of nowhere is like, I'm going to film all this great shit. He's got, such good instincts for where to put the camera, 
how to dial everything in, the focus, the depth of field. It just looks so good. And he's been doing it for like not that long. Like just just whole, when it comes to it. It's just like a whole new field to learn. I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot of stuff to geek out there. There's no more room in my brain right now. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm going to have to forget how to mix a snare if I'm going to learn how to like color correct a video. I don't know. It takes it, it. I mean, there is a learning curve to it. You know, I, I got into. So uh, just to give you a little bit of background on myself is that. Uh, I think it was three, maybe three, three or four years ago, I started working on doing this solo album. And it was this like super ambitious thing because I was going to write and record, mix and master like 15 track instrumental metal out. Like it was just ridiculous. It was stupid. Um but I ended up just pushing myself way too hard to try and get it done. Uh, I got some some tendonitis in my left hand, which forced me to put down a guitar. Um, that sucks. I mean, it's it's this is my favorite failure because this is what set me on the path to being here, right? Because if I had continued with the music thing, I don't know where I would be. But after I put down the guitar, I had to continue moving. I had to continue like educating myself, keep myself mentally busy uh, and and interested in things. So I started picking up mixing. So I got into audio mixing, production, that sort of thing. I got into speed mixing with the URM people and got in with them. And then I have to pivot because I got hired to do, you know, video production. Because the opportunity came for me to move down to L.A. to work with uh, a, a good friend of mine. You know, he wanted to hire me on to do his uh, his editing and content creation for his YouTube channel. So I was like, OK, this is a new thing I got to mix. And I'm cool with doing this because the opportunities are great. And then it became so much more because now I'm working with Neural DSP, making full time living, doing YouTube content. And I don't quite remember where I was going with that, but uh but yeah, there's a learning curve to it, but it's it's worth it in the end because the attention that you get just becomes this exponential growth, right? So like if you can get even just like a good couple of like consistent pieces of content out, photos, 60 second clips or something like that, it becomes, you know, it, it, it starts to snowball on itself. You get some momentum behind it and it's less of like an onerous thing. I, I imagine it's the kind of thing where like if you take a vacation, it's tough to get back into the swing of things. I just like I what is, haven't. What is vacation? For real. <laughs> um, for real. Yeah. No, that's uh, yeah. Not in the swing of it. Need to get better at it. Might. Who knows? Um, I'm always impressed when people are like really good at it, though. Um, yeah, it's a it's a definite skill set. But I don't. I have not tried to hone that one. Yeah. No, I mean, always, if you have any questions, you're more than welcome to ask. Thank you. I appreciate I mean, it. I've, I, I've, 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 I've run the ringer and I, I, I know generally speaking what I, what I'm doing. So I like it. So let's see. I think it's probably a good time to get into some maybe rapid fire and some, uh, some, some audience questions. Yeah. That sounds great. All right. Yeah, let's just go ahead and go to uh, user questions. So this is from YouTube. So some of these names are going to get a little weird. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so uh, so XY asks, uh, what's your strategy when it comes to low mid 
200 to 500 hertz. Way too many tips and tricks out there refer to this frequency as mud, but it's also where the weight and the warmth is. Uh, how do you find the pocket for every element that lives there? It's a good question because it's going to vary depending on the style that you're mixing, but also like the types of tones you're going within and how they interact. Like, is your guitar going to be more low mid heavy? So your bass is going to be riding the lows. Is your gar- guitar going to be pumping a lot of sub content, not sub, but like, you know, low in heft to it that you're going to need to compensate on the bass. Um, I actually recently had a problem where, um, after listening back to a mix, um, found it was like too smiley, like too scooped in that exact region. And, um, and one of my, one of my friends pointed out, like, go check out this five finger death punch record. It's kind of an example of how far you can push that low mid range before it gets like kind of woofy and is like the record sounds honky. There's this one, um, five finger death punch record. I don't remember the title of it. I have no idea. who makes it. I'm sorry, but it sounds like it's like really low mid focused in a, like a, an almost like a kind of way in it. Um, it was just an interesting A B and be like, oh wow, you can push that way further than I thought. I scooped way too much out of it. Let's go back and adjust. And I wound up getting like more 270 in the in the the bass specifically, but then also on the master bus, there was some stuff in that like three to five hundred range that I wound up boosting that I normally don't. Um, so I think a lot of it is is giving yourself a little breathing room, gave your ears some time to rest, go check it out on other sources, compare to other mixes, try to find things that like reference points that you can find extremes of like, how far did they push this? Um, like, I really love to find out like, um, I love siloing records off where like, this is a dry sounding record. Like Andy Wallace stuff is great to reference for like, does not own a reverb pedal kind of mixes. Um, and I'll use that as like a cool, how like my mix is feeling sparse. Well, here's, let's listen to the sparsest thing I can imagine. And how sparse does it really feel? Uh, you can do that with a lot of that stuff that you're having issues with. Um, low end content is definitely a nightmare. I can tell you, I compress the low mid range on the bass. I do the Andy Sneap C4 trick. Um, I definitely have kick side chain to bass all the time and I'm ducking some subs, which, which helps you pump more of the upper mid range, like heft without like having your subs fart out on the heavier stuff. Um, yeah, a couple things in there. Hopefully that answered your question. Awesome. Uh, I think this is generally a repeat question, so you can answer this or not, and I can edit this out, but, uh, uh, setting fire to giants asks, I've been trying to cut frequencies to create room for instruments to cut through the mix, but I feel like I can't get the separation and sound of everything to come through. Any advice? Uh, be careful you're not compressing too much. I think a lot of people um, will annihilate things thinking that like, oh, you compress them to get them all more equal volume. But um, there's this impact you get where you compress too much and you take all the life out of something and suddenly it's just like flatlined. Uh, I notice that with vocals a lot. If you compress the crap out of vocals, you don't get the right like sits on top of the mix. You get this like sits in an annoying place. Um, same can go for really dense things where you're like you're basically just competing with volume. Um, I would say, like I mentioned, there's definitely some multiband side chaining stuff that I like to do. Um, kick to, uh, kick to bass bus. I do a lot of vocals to instrumental bus to kind of clear that out. Anything where I know the content's going to be similar. So kicks and bass, um, sometimes kicks and guitar, uh, sometimes vocals and guitar on its own. Um, 
I'm trying to think there's there's definitely charts you can find where it's like the frequencies of different instruments in like a Gantt chart format. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where like it's laid out where yeah, like these are yeah. kick drum and then snare starts here and then vocals take up this whole spot. Those are pretty like good, I think, for judging where things are going to end up overlapping. Right. Yeah, I've, I've seen some that are better than others, for sure. Uh, yeah. There's there's a couple that have been mm, laughably bad, <laughs> but uh <laughs> It's like, I don't know why you just decided to play Tetris on this thing. I don't, I don't know. No. Uh, cool. So this is, a, this is an interesting question. All right. So James Yellow asks, uh, what, are th- uh, what are your thoughts about copying and pasting parts in songs and editing the guitar parts to the grid? Uh, isn't that taking all the soul out of the music? And I, I, don't, I don't particularly agree with this premise, to be that honest. That there's soul but, in the music? Yeah, no, no, that... that editing everything to the grid is taking the soul out of the music. Oh yeah. I mean like the argue, the obvious, generally people who want to talk to me about feel and soul are people who have fucking terrible feel and rhythm, um, is what I find. So like, there's definitely take that with a grain of salt, but, um, with guitars, I'm not cutting on the grid. If it's the start of something, it's always pulling back. You want that pick attack in there. Really helpful to see the DI in there. Even if you're tracking a tone that you like, which I'm a huge proponent of still take a DI signal. So you can like have as a visual aid. That's usually nice. Um, copying and pasting within a song. Um, I usually discuss it on a per part basis with the person who I'm recording. Sometimes you'll find someone who's like really anal about, I want it to sound like play the whole thing the whole way through versus like copying the chorus, um, between each part. Some people are just like, no, man, I want to rock this out as fast as possible. Like, why are we going to waste time? If we get it, we get it. Um, so usually just trying to like placate the artist, make sure that they're happy in that regard. What I like to do to like fake feeling like I'm doing something. Um, a lot of times if I do have to copy and paste, say I've got quad guitars, I really like quad guitars. Um, if I need to copy and paste these four back to back, I'll shift them up. So I'll copy like this one here and this one there and that one there. And like, so it, doesn't play the same stereo thing back to back when you're listening to it. And like, if you were listening on like just one ear, you would hear a different performance between the two, but only because like the one that used to be playing on the left is now playing on the right. Um, I don't know that it actually makes a difference in the end. I've never a beat it, but it makes me feel better. And like, I'm not cheating as much. Got it. Got it. So it's, it's a, it's a per per project basis. And most of the time we're copying and pasting stuff. Like, let's be real. Um, we're not going to record the chorus four different times if it's not played differently four different times. Um, but because I'm making the guy quad track and usually there's two repetitions of a riff, we've got like a, a fair bit of unique performances to play with. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense because at, at the end of the day, like how much is your time worth and how, like what sort of return on investment are you getting by recording four different choruses and editing all four different choruses the same like it's you know there has to be a balance between those things between authenticity and you know efficiency exactly yeah cool uh josh reynolds asks uh, what are your top three uh tips for editing guitars uh find a strip silence or silence detection setting that you can get really good at hitting. I have a hotkey set up where Cubase has a, what is it called? Let me find it in the menu right here. Um, audio processes. No, it's under advanced detect silence is what it's called. I have it set up to a hotkey and it's, 
you set the threshold and it strips silence between. But what I like about it for guitars is that if you find what works for that particular player, especially if you're keying off the DI, you can do it in a way where it'll chop your breakdowns for you or at least close enough that it saves a ton of time. It does the like before and after cleanup for you really well. Um, and then find something that will let you slip at it. I don't know how you people track and edit guitars without slip editing. It's insane. <laughs> no, it makes make Cubase's slip editing is probably my favorite feature. I rely on it because Pro Tools ha- Pro Tools has it, but you have to hit like a bunch of keys to do it. Whereas with oh, they do the like fifteen millisecond, or that you can define the millisecond, but you have to nudge it each time, yes. and that is like. I don't know. Yeah, I don't just sit there like a woodpecker at your computer. Yeah, I don't I don't I I don't fuck with it at all. It's annoying. What I really like is in one thing I do in Cubase a lot is you'll see is um when I click, I'm clicking in a point relative to where like when I drag my mouse over, I'm dragging my mouse onto the grid where it should be. And so that just ends up being so much faster to do than a bunch series of nudges. Right. Yeah, no, that makes way more sense. You can get so much more fine-tuned yeah. uh, editing that way. I will say on guitars, like I don't edit guitars if I track them. When I'm done tracking them, they are done. I do not get up from my chair until I can consolidate the whole song into one region if I need to. Um, and that means making the guy sit there while I edit silences if I have to. Um, oftentimes you'll come across parts where, oh, I wish I could have him just quickly punch in a note here. And then you get it. You find that out like right there. It also translates the amount of time you're spending on editing it to, so that they like more appreciate that process and learn that like, maybe I shouldn't have an ego cause I didn't track my stuff perfectly. And it wasn't the best thing right off the bat. Um, but it also saves you the hassle of ever having to come back to it. There's nothing worse than co- opening a session going, oh fuck, I need to edit some of this. That's the worst right. feeling. You just can't get to work. So, um, that's the thing I'll say is I try to as much as possible, as much as I want to get out at the end of the day, I'm not leaving my chair until that piece is edited. That makes a lot of sense because then you're – It'll make you get better at getting good takes along right. the way too because if you're thinking like, hey, do I want to spend time editing this at the end or do I want to make him do it a couple more times? And you should always be making him do it a couple more times. You should never be editing your way out of it. But um, that's a good way to like keep yourself checked on that. Right, right. Do you find that that's problematic when you end up receiving stems to to mix? Do you get a lot of like sloppy tracks or anything like that from people? Yeah, a lot of it is like I can't even give. I feel bad because people always want like, hey, give me feedback on what I could improve next time. And a lot of it is like you need to pay way more attention when you're tracking guitars. And I don't know how to like you can't do that while editing. I don't know how to tell you exactly, but like. Several things were out of tune in a lot of way in like spots where I could go through and highlight exactly where like this hit was too hard that but it's a waste of both of our time where like um, if you did the process where you were like I'm getting album ready guitars by the time we're out and maybe some of it is like they're not hearing the same things I am. Um, I don't know. It's yeah, that's the thing that I've been noticing lately is like the quality of a guitar DI and who tracked it is playing a bigger, bigger role in how big I can get a lot of the productions. That makes a lot of sense because with the advent of like the home studio technology, like you got more and more guitar players who are just like, I'll just track it at home and then just send it off. And that becomes really problematic. One of the scariest things I hear is like, cool, we track drums with this guy, but then we tracked uh, DIs with our Axe effects. Oh, Jesus. Like you don't even have an interface. It just tells it like 
not to, I'm sure it's a fine interface, but if, if you don't even have a dedicated interface, you probably don't have like the rigor necessary to track album ready guitar DIs. Right. Right. It's unfortunate. But yeah, it's the thing I run into a lot is that uh, guitars or bass a lot of times people are not good with bass. I'm the type of guy who I melodyne every bass track I get for the most part. Um, I'm going to lock that in. But yeah, the stuff sometimes stuff gets sent over real, real bad in that regard. And I think it's exacerbated by the fact that a lot of it's program drums. Here's program drums. Sometimes here's program bass. Here's vocals and here's guitars. And like, cool. So the only thing like your program drums are going to be to a certain standard. Like they're not going to be unique, but they're going to be to a certain standard sonically. And if your guitars don't match that, it's going to be glaringly obvious. So that's where it becomes bigger. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. It's like oddly taking the shortcut and programming drums means you have to get way better at tracking guitar. Right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. That makes too much sense. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So next questions are from Facebook. Uh, we got John Mossiel. Uh, he asks, <laughs> he says, Jeff, why are barefoot monitors amazing and anything else not? <laughs> uh, John's a good guy. Um, He's a great guy. John also works on a pair of MM45s. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I think there's a lot of hype around a lot of new monitors lately. Um, monitors I think are the type of thing where you find something you like for a brand and you like it and you buy in largely for, for life. I found like people who are into Genelex love Genelex people who love NS tens love NS tens. Um, I, there's some people who like love that super bright Adam tweeter sound. And, um, I don't know for whatever reason, um, I really like the barefoots for the fact that this, they sound a little bit hypey. Like they do the client pleasing thing where in the room, they're super beefy. I've tricked people into thinking I have a sub on numerous occasions. They move a lot of air, but they translate beautifully. So like NS tens, I know they translate really well, but I hate listening on them. Like I hate working on them because they just don't sound cool to me. And like, maybe that's like, broken millennial ears have to always be satisfied by tones while they're tracking or something. But like, I want to be moved by it. And the barefoots give the effect of like really, really providing a lot of, um, just weight, moving a lot of air being really hypey in that regard, but also being crazy transparent and translating really, really well. I can't say that without giving a huge shout out to Sonarworks Lee at Sonarworks. Thank you again. Um, Totally changed my workflow um, as far as like being able to confidently send stuff out without needing to check on multiple, multiple, multiple sources. Um, and I don't even listen to music without Sonarworks anymore. In this, if I'm in this room and listening to music, it's Sonarworks um, and it sounds wrong without it now. Agreed. I like the first time that I used uh, Sonarworks on a mix, it was just it was just eye opening. It felt like somebody took like wool off of my ears it was it was just astounding how how bad everything sounded because I'm I'm still on my like JBL LSR 308 so it's like you know they're they're consumer grade monitors and I'm looking to upgrade at some point but like they've they, they've done pretty well I've learned I've learned a lot on them uh, but yeah no it's just like it's consumer grade so it's not going to be as good as like the Barefoots or the NS10 like you know so it's not going to be as good but yeah the Sonarworks just like opened everything up. And I don't, I hardly ever turn it off now. Hardly ever. 
No, my only pet peeve is how I sometimes forget to turn it off when I'm bouncing stuff. And then I don't realize until I hear two versions of Sonar works on it. And I'm like, oh, that's scooped. Who put a BBE Sonic <laughs> Maximizer on my mix? And then I realized I did. <laughs> I actually, I had a funny thing. I mixed a single for Make Them Suffer before they came in and did the record. And uh, when I sent the first version back out to the guys, I accidentally included Sonarworks on it. And then I realized the morning after I was like, shit, sorry, definitely a bad move for you to see this. But like, uh, here's the corrected version. And they were like, we like how hypey that first version with Sonarworks is. So like the version that ended up shipping was like a version of um, I took the EQ curve that they do and put a preset in my fab filter bank of like what Sonarworks is doing to my audio. And then I used the mix knob to blend that in a little bit. I was going to use Sonarworks directly, but I kept blowing up the, it was too loud for Sonarworks basically um, on the other end. But yeah, no, it was, it was really funny. Um, I have not made that mistake since, but yeah. Right. Right. So this was, I I, I didn't know if this question was, uh, was a troll or not, but uh, I'll, I'll, throw it in there just in case but uh uh another facebook question george lever asks uh ask him how many times he has clapped in an empty room and said yeah drums would sound great in here a fucking million are you joking like are you an engineer every time i've walked into any <laughs> a-frame structures like yeah drums would sound great in here walking to friends houses can i record drums in your foyer like no um i love george george is one of my oldest and best friends in audio and Okay. Very, very talented dude. Um, No, we were just talking about this recently. Um, You can tell if a good is room just by talking in it. You absolutely can. You don't need to clap your hands. (laughs) Awesome. But that is how that's, I think that's like anyone who's ever recorded drums has thought about that. There's just something that it opens in your brain where you're like tall ceilings, room mics. Cool. Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. So, uh, Will Katanach, 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 Will Katanach says, are drums on the Crystal Lake albums programmed? They are. They're programmed. Um, Gaku, their current touring drummer, is inhuman. Go check out his YouTube videos. That dude blows me away. He somehow plays them better than the program stuff. Um, but the drums on the records have been programmed. Um, basically, uh, it's the tune track made of metal pack, that Colin Richardson one. Um, we dialed it in early on that Apollo single that we did um, and have really, really liked kind of the signature, like the snare's a little thinner than I think we would go for on some mixes, um, but it's got this kind of like cutting futuristic effect. Um, that band is fucking incredible. God damn it. They are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are programmed. Awesome. Uh, Will has another question. Uh, do you, well, I think we actually covered this in the podcast actually so he asks, do you make your own kemper profiles if so what are some of your amps of choice yes so i've found i think a lot of people with kempers have found this i don't like profiles that aren't mine like i've gone through um whatever packs that you can buy and that friends have made and they always sound wrong to me and i think part of it's an ego thing like i didn't set it up and i always think i can do better because i like to think i can do great tones um but, uh, yeah, every record I make, I profile, there's a bunch of dudes touring on the profiles that they used on the records. So that's really handy to be able to have, um, one benefit of having the prof, the Kemper 
um, is that Drew and, I, Drew and I each have a Kemper and I'll often make a bunch of tones for a specific record before we start or like once we've gotten some DIs, I'll take them back and do some tests and just make tones. And then we'll go and track the record on the Kemper with those tones we made. And a lot of times we won't have to reamp after the fact. Sometimes we still will. Um, like the Make Them Suffer record turned out to be, I'm referencing that one a lot. Um, a Kemper profile we tracked for one and then I reamped with the Ubershaw for some quads. Um, the Amir record we just finished was all Kemper with a, a 5150 tone that I kind of tailor made for, for Josh. Um, a couple cause he wanted, we've got like a bunch that have different like dirt and octave pedals in front. Um, and it's just nice to be able to go back to tones and be like, Hey, this was what we used on that record. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like making them as far as amps. Um, these four get the, uh, these three get the most use, the Ubershaw, um, 5150 and a really, really old dual rectifier. Um, the JSX on top gets some lead use. Um, that's a new one. I haven't gotten like fully dialed in with that yet, but um, I love that despised icon record that Sneep mixed. So I'm always after that. Um, and then I have over there a Bogner Ecstasy that is probably like the best, most fun to play and best sounding lead amp I've ever had. So those are the, the go-tos. Something that's like a Soldano ripoff and then some Bogner stuff. Fantastic. Uh, see, Colby, Colby Hempel, he has a series of questions. So I'll ask you just, I'll, we'll just go through one at a time. So uh, what are your go-to snare and kick samples? I've got a couple libraries I like to lean on. Not like to lean on, but end up leaning on. Um, on the Sneet Forum, there's a dude named Jacob... Oh, I totally Veal, I think is his last name. Um, if you search for Nash VR music group, Nashville drum samples, um, they released a pack of really affordable, really killer samples like a long time ago. Um, I use the kicks a lot. The Chelsea grin record is one kick in particular from that pack. Um, and then I use some of their snares are really good. Um, really cracky ringing stuff done in a big open room in Nashville. Um, uh, the get good samples that come with their packs that they like the TCIs that are separate. I would say that mm, all but one or two mixes in the last three years have had some kind of get good room sample uh, layered in. Um, and then the, the tune track stuff in particular um, made of metal, metal machinery, the Sneep and Richardson kits. They have that killer prog foundry um, pack that's a lot of really cool stuff in there. Someone actually sampled Zildjian cymbals for once. More people need to sample Zildjian cymbals. They're just great. I'm sick of this Sabian vinyl <laughs> shit. Um, no offense. Um, and then uh, Joe Barisi did a pack called Evil Drums a long, long time ago, which is super hard to find. You can get a BFD version still, but the easy the SDX was really tough to find. Um, you have to find it used now. Uh, but it was samples taken in Sound City before they tore it down. And it is some of the best rock and roll drum samples you can get, I think. Also, tons of great Zildjian A and K customs. So uh, makes me happy. Awesome. So uh, let's see. His next question is, what plugins do you favor on your mix bus? Uh, I've had a pretty consistent mix bus for a while now. It's one of those things that I'm like a little bit sensitive on because I feel like I'm I need to change it up, you know, like surely I need to stop using the same mix bus chain so often, but like dial in a couple things, get a few things hitting the right way, um, tweak per mix. But this one setup I've had for a while works really well, which is multiband compression followed by a Pultec style EQ followed by SSL style compression 
and then two other compressors to add flavor, not to add a lot of compression, but something like a Fairchild, something like a Focusrite Red. I'll often use that um, Slate Bus Comp thing, all three of them. I really, really like the SSL, not the SSL, the Brainworks has that townhouse compressor that I think is an SSL bus comp. That thing is sick. Um, always have a fab filter EQ for uh, some surgical stuff and some like overall shaping, not doing a ton. And then usually end in some kind of tape saturation. I've really been loving the soft tube tape, uh, soft tube tape, soft tube tape um, plugin lately for that. So yeah, uh, usually some, yeah, multiband, a pull tech to give you some boost on high and low. So you have to do less work on the other tracks. The SSL compression for that, like the glue in the 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 kind of smear that it gives. Something that's a little hypey. And some EQ at the end and some tape. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, his last question. Uh, could you talk about the snare processing on the new uh, Motionless and White? It's one of his absolute favorites. I love that record. It turned out really well. I'm really glad we got to mix that one because we didn't get to mix the last record that we um, produced and engineered for them. Um, but this time, Chris wanted us to do it. And I actually just saw Chris this past weekend at uh, Self Help Fest in San Bernardino. So new song sound killer live. Um, his band is awesome. Uh, the snare on that one was um, program drums again. Um, that one was a, a big Franken kit we made of tune track products. Um, so the snare you're hearing is, uh, a made of metal. Oh, it's either made of metal or metal machinery snare. And then it also has an evil drum snare layered in, in the same sampler. So like out of superior, we're getting two snare drums. And then on top of that, we've got a snare sample, which is there's one super ringy one. Um, and one of those Nashville samples, I think. And then in a totally different sample set, um, working with Motionless is great because they have such like a, a storied sound behind the rest of the records that you can pull from and that Chris often likes to throw back to. So we pulled a sample from um, one of their first records. Um, I don't remember oh, blinking on which one it was. It's one of the first one or two first records, um, a really ringy, almost like Suicide Silent style snare. Um, and that is layered in under it. So it's a big, big Franken stack of, of snares, probably like six to eight by the end of it. But, um, the way I do all of my stuff is that I've got snare natural mics, a snare sample, and then a parent snare bus. So those are feeding the snare bus. I'll compress the, the normal snare with like the real snare metric halo channel strip or like API 2500, um, do some EQ on that. Usually have a, a clipper just to get extra volume on the real snare mic. Often that's to combat like cymbal bleed. Um, but on a programmed one, you're not worrying about it as much. And then on the actual snare bus doing a little bit more compression, a little bit of EQ. Um, there's probably a reverb on the snare channel itself in addition to the room sample. And then the, like whatever rooms were sampled with the, the, the kit, the like bass snares that we had from tune track. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that one. Yeah. Awesome, man. This was a lot of fun. So, um, are there any projects you're working on currently that you want people to know about or things that you're excited about? Where can people find you? Uh, totally. So same things really excited. I really want people to hear the new Amir. It's ridiculous. Um, and the new make them suffer record. I'm so stoked on the guitar tones for it. It was the first one I really got to work the Uber shawl in on. And, um, they were just great to work with songs are fucking killer. Um, Really, really excited for 
there's a local band from San Diego called Seconds Ago that I'm mixing a record for where um, a guy named Elmo, um, folks will know as Ice Nine Kills front of house guy, um, tracked drums and vocals on. And we just got tracked. So I'm excited to dig into that. And then um, Wes Hauk and I are going to be doing something later in the year. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, yeah, as far as uh, getting in touch, um, hello at jeffdunn.com. Jeffdunn.com is a website. Really easy there. I run a Slack group for other audio engineers if you want to join. It's just a cool place to have in my pocket to check in with folks. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the uh, the podcast and having such a wonderful conversation with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And thanks for making such killer plugins. I can't tell you how often I get to the end of a mix and I'm like, cool, time to re... I don't need to reamp these. They sound great. <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. Thank you so much for checking out the Inside the Machine podcast. Be sure to check into our next episode where I interview Zach Oren. The next episode beyond that will be Lee McKinney. And as always... I'll catch you in that next episode.